Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude. There are seven episodes. This is one of them. It's a crisp, clear Monday evening in January as Will McCullough makes the arduous commute from his home office to the podcast studio. Curses! he exclaims as a two-cat pileup on the stairs blocks his path in the hallway. Phoenix, I'll be about 15 seconds late. I ran into traffic. Well, if you could make sure the traffic gets their wet food before we start recording, everything should be fine, replies Phoenix, rolling her eyes at the adorable pile of Sokka and Leela on the floor as they assiduously avoid touching one another. I have to point out, I will not make you redo that take. You know why? Hmm. In the middle of it, there's a... <laughs> and I'm not sure if it got picked up on our microphones, but I hope it did. <laughs> I'm glad you liked that. It was quite cute. And yes, Sokka really loves Leela, and Leela really does not love Sokka. Well, I was thinking that oftentimes our... Little things have been about the joys of cozy hot beverages. This one would be about the joys of cute cats. Yes. Fits our theme. Fits our book. Exactly. Fits our aesthetic. Oh, yes. We're cat people. <laughs> if you haven't noticed by now, what rock are you living under? And have you been listening to us? Anywho. So, this week, we have pages what, what, what to what, what, what? 328 through 405 of the u.s paperback edition of the starless sea and as usual we have some disclaimers so as always we are in no way affiliated with erin morgenstern or her publisher anchor books and as always please be kind to us to yourself and the authors responsible for the books you love so with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our discussion. We start things off with one of the folded stars. This is Nightmare number 113. I went ahead and took the liberty of writing it all down since it's rather short, so I'm just going to read it. I am sitting in a very big chair and I cannot get out of it. My arms are tied to the chair arms, but my hands are gone. There are people without faces standing around me, feeding me pieces of paper that have all the things I am supposed to be written on them, but they never ask me what I am. That just is a gripping depiction of that lack of agency when people are defining you for you without giving you any say in it. I think that that's terrifying, to be honest. To have everyone telling you what you ought to be. And not even giving you time to figure out what you want to be. The next section here, we see Zachary emerging from the Tomb of the Acolytes, and he's clearly pretty shaken. I mean, that was a creepy situation. Yeah, and we see him go back to his room where he's contemplating whether he's going to leave all this behind, go back to Vermont, forget all this happened... And in fact, for a little while there, he's almost convinced that he has just made all of this up, that he's imagining it all. That it's a fever dream. And that he probably should just wake up and leave. But it's interesting how after he wakes up in the morning, he has a clear head and his resolve hardens. And he decides he's going to set out and find Mirabelle and they're going to get to work solving this problem. He has to find the man lost in time who we have determined is Simon from the Ballad of Simon and Eleanor. I adore this little interaction that he has before he sets out. He talks with the kitchen through notes and he eventually tells them the kitchen that he loves them. And they say that they like him back. I can see why he loves them. They're unconditional. How could you not love an entity that responds to your every need without any argument or second guessing, and then also throws on extra little bits of kindness on there. I can see how it could be a little odd and or suffocating at points, but I think that the kitchen themselves or itself or what have you is altruistic and eager to please. And it's mystical and whimsical and cute. Further on, we get another nightmare. I am walking in a dark, 
dark place. And something big and slithery is slithering in the dark so close. I could reach out and touch it. But if I touch it, the slithery thing will know that I am here and it will eat me very slowly. Do you want to know what this reminds me of? Mm. The princess and Mr. Wiffle. (laughs) Incidentally, if you want to hear us talk about the princess and Mr. Wiffle, it is one of our Patreon solstice pods. Just putting that out there. Is it the best one? No. Were we very new at this? Yes. But it exists. It's also really creepy, but it reminds me of just being a child with nightmares rather than being an adult with nightmares. Children nightmares, I think, are terrifying in their characters and scenery more so than the way that adult nightmares are about anxieties and existential threats that are kind of formless. It's all about that fear of the unknown. And when you're a kid, there's a lot of unknown. But I think that when you're a kid, your imagination also puts shape to it. Much more concretely, too. So then we get a combined passage that seems to be composed of several paper stars put together. I mean, it does say combined contents of several paper stars. Yeah, it does say that. (laughs) It doesn't seem to be. It's like going into a dungeon in D&D and having your DM say, it doesn't look like there's anything in that room. That's a valid thing to say as a dungeon master. You don't notice anything. Well, you don't. It seemed to be all clear. It does. And it is. (laughs) All right, moving on. (laughs) Moving on. So this section hints at the painter, who we've heard mentioned before. As the person who quasi-raised Eleanor? Yeah, and she seems to be an acolyte, but she gave up something different. Most acolytes give up their voice. She gave up her eye. It has sort of an Odin feel to it. We'll put a pin in that as we move forward. So then we go back to Zachary. And uh, Zachary with his Persian cat friend. I just love the idea of this little grumpy looking squishy faced kitty going around with him. I mean, why not? (laughs) So he's out exploring the harbor and they come across another secret passageway. And when you see a secret passageway, you kind of have to try it. And inside that secret passageway, Zachary runs into Dorian. Who is standing in front of a painting that reminds Zachary of the painting in his room, which is bunny pirates. This one is a nighttime forest scene with the moon visible between the branches. But within the forest, there is an immense bird cage so large that on a perch inside where a bird might be, there is a man turned away from the viewer, sitting forlornly in his prison. This man also happens to be dressed identically to how Dorian himself is dressed. Foreshadowing? Possibly. Zachary is clearly looking for someone to confide in right now. And who can blame him? He's got a lot going through his head. And so he and Dorian start talking about their puzzle. What is really interesting to me is contrasting this interaction with their interactions when Dorian sent Zachary to the Collector's Club. Zachary and Dorian's initial interactions together were pretty one-sided, with Dorian playing this aloof, mysterious stranger who essentially dictated terms. His interactions with Zachary here are mutual admiration. The way he describes Zachary as, you're actually real... You're not a dream. It's enchanting. He's someone who's expressing emotion towards this other person, and he's treating Zachary like a person instead of just a pawn. What I do love about this story is that there is a black main protagonist who is gay. You don't get a lot of minorities that are also gay in stories, 
without a big neon sign that says, look, I did a good. He just gets to be him. Their little sweet romance gets to be a sweet romance without, look, they're gay. I did a good (laughs) from the author. They just get to be. And it's so sweet because like Zachary wonders how easy it is to feel someone's heartbeat through a sweater. And it's just so cute. The other thing I really appreciated here is as much as Dorian has been someone who seemingly knows what's going on, we discover that all of that is really a facade. He's never been to the Starless Sea before. He has never been to a harbor. He's never really seen the inner workings of any of this. He's only heard about this as as rumor. He's only heard about it as much as Zachary had just reading Sweet Sorrows. Right. And in his case, it's Fortunes and Fables and being part of the Collector's Club with Allegra as mentor. And even then, she hasn't really told them a whole lot about what's down here. So his reaction to all of this is just as much wonder as Zachary did when he first arrived down here. So he's getting to have this experience of wonder of his own. They then set about comparing notes. I really love this. It reminds me of how when you're playing D&D, or any role-playing game for that matter, and you're given a challenge, it's a puzzle, and if you're just looking at it all by yourself, it's really easy to get lost in the sauce, so to speak. But then when you have another person with you, or a group of people with you, to share notes, to bring their own perspectives to it, it suddenly takes on its own life. It becomes more than just an abstraction it becomes an activity and you can see that they're both enjoying this idea of going on this quest we also learn that while you're in one of the harbors or the starless sea languages automatically translate for you which is why zachary is able to read fortunes and fables and to speak clearly and fluently with dorian and mirabelle who we have discovered in the past has had a hard time remembering what language she needs to be speaking in what location up on the surface. So after that, when they go back to Zachary's room, Dorian, expressing a little bit of whimsy that we haven't really gotten a chance to see from him before, points out that there's a wardrobe in the back. And what does any good geek think when they see a wardrobe? Much like our cat, Narnia! Yes! Back when we had a closet that was not easily blocked off from our cat Leela, her favorite thing was to run between our legs in the morning as we were leaving the closet and get herself lost in there. And we had to pull her out of Narnia almost every morning. Our ongoing joke was once a cat or kitten in Narnia, always a cat or kitten in Narnia. (laughs) I am so glad we don't have to worry about trying to get Sokka out of a closet. Sorry, I just (laughs) blue screened a little bit at the thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they quickly discovered that this is not Narnia. It is a hallway full of doors. And we'll get to that when we return to their little story. So then we get another one of the little folded stars. This one's mangled. It has been so mangled by circumstance and time that its shape is only vaguely recognizable as a star. And what was on that star? The story, it seems, of how the dollhouse room was set aflame. Yeah, it seems like Simon landed there unstuck from time and accidentally knocked a candelabra over and accidentally set the uh, the room on fire. And this is why you always watch where you're going to land when you're time traveling. This is why? That's one reason why. <laughs> there are many. Okie dokie. So, Zachary just saw Dorian go through a wardrobe and he follows because of course you do. I mean, it's not any weirder than anything else he's seen so far. No. <laughs> not even a little. And then... We get basically a time-shifting ball. Yeah, it seems like it's this party out of time where everyone seems to be vaguely in and out of phase with one another. Some people can see Zachary, some people cannot. Some people can and then they can't. Zachary comes across 
a multitude of people, a multitude of story. And all he wants is to find Dorian. It's really cute. One of the other things that we get during this is some key resolution to both the story of the innkeeper and the moon and also time and fate are hinted at. So we find out that the moon hated that she had to leave the innkeeper behind and so talked to time about whether there was a place where they could be together again. And we find out that time carved out a little space here within the harbor where everyone would be safe from the owls. And this would be a safe spot where the innkeeper and the moon could rendezvous. The moon returned to this place as often as she could, in stolen moments of borrowed time. She had found an impossible love. She resolved to find a way to keep it. That's very sweet. I love the little story that is woven throughout. I think that it is more impactful for our readers to read it themselves. But at the end of all of this, a hand closes over Zachary's eyes, calming the swirling movement and dimming the golden firelight. A voice he would know anywhere whispers in his ear. And so the moon found a way to keep her love. I love that both Zachary and Dorian gravitated towards that story of the moon and the innkeeper. Because that story is one of just pure affection and comfort and joy of two beings just appreciating one another. It's kindness as love. That really resonates with me. And I love that it resonates with Zachary and Dorian too. Makes me like them more. Absolutely. After this ballroom scene and Dorian and Zachary reuniting, a paper star splattered with gold paint. The starless sea is rising. The owls watch as the tides shift slowly at first. They fly over waves that break upon long abandoned shores. They call out warnings and exultations. The time has come. They have waited so long. They screech and celebrate until the sea is so high that they too must seek shelter. The starless sea continues to rise. Now it floods the harbor, pulling the books from their shelves and claiming the heart for itself. The end has come. Here now is the Owl King, bringing the future on his wings. Very ominous. Few things are as destructive as liquid. And in this case, it's viscous, it's sticky. Not only is water impossible to breathe, but this is coating everything. It is difficult to choke down. It's heavy. It will suck you in. The thought of my books being coated, submerged in honey, that look on your face says everything. Like, I hate it when I just get a little bit of honey on my fingers and it's just too sticky. It, ugh, I hate it so much. And just the thought of being covered in that is, ugh, I, I don't like it. Well, now that we are back to Zachary Ezra Rollins' story... He tumbles through a curtain of cashmere and linen, pulling down sweaters and shirts as he and Dorian crash back through the wardrobe. Ultimately, their travels to Narnia are at an end. It was a fun little detour. It was. It also, I know I've said this before, but the ballroom, the dancing, the lights and the confusion remind me so much of the part of the labyrinth that also involves all of said things. It would be very difficult to believe that Aaron Morgenstern was not at least a little inspired by that. It does sound like her jam or her honey as the case may be. But um, bum So the other thing to remember is they got dragged back cataclysmically just as that paper star splattered with gold paint foretold a cataclysm they're brought back with explosions and there's sounds of destruction coming from within the harbor within the heart they rush into the heart to see what's going on to find that allegra is there and she basically grenades the place 
Yeah, opening up this massive chasm in the floor to the starless sea below. Through which she and Dorian and Mirabelle fall. For a split second, Zachary's eyes meet Dorian's, and he remembers what Dorian said minutes, seconds, moments before. I don't want to lose this. And then Dorian is gone, and the keeper is holding Zachary back from the edge. It's almost that fly you fools moment. (laughs) It really is. So then we get the paper star that was the unicorn. I get a little bit of Blade Runner vibes out of that. Just a little bit, yes. The son of the fortune teller walks through the snow. He carries a sword that was crafted by the finest of swordsmiths long before he was born. The sword's sisters are both lost. One destroyed in fire in order to become something new and the other sunken in the seas and forgotten. The sword now rests in a scabbard once worn by an adventurer who perished in an attempt to protect one she loved. Both her sword and her love were lost along with the rest of her story. For a time, songs were sung about this adventurer, but little truth remained within the verses. So clothed in history and myth, the son of the fortune teller looks towards a light in the distance. He thinks he is almost there, but he has so far to go. We're starting to see Zachary here as the big damn hero a little bit. (laughs) And you can tell that he's starting to kind of warm to it. So next we have another interlude, this one taking place 20 years ago in Sardinia, Italy. And here we find the painter washing ashore on the Sardinian coast and She's made a vow that to avert some coming cataclysm, she's going to take drastic action. And then we find out that this painter is Allegra. Allegra, who essentially raised both Eleanor and Mirabelle. And Dorian, for that matter. So then we come back to the present as the Keeper and Zachary escape to a safe room. And it's here that we learn a little bit more about the Keeper's relationship with Mirabelle. When I first read this, I kept thinking that Mirabelle seems a lot like the moon in that relationship with the moon and the innkeeper. You have this Keeper and innkeeper. That just seemed like a natural thing. And because Mirabelle moves around with the tides, that seemed logical to me. We discover there's more to it that she is someone who gets reincarnated periodically. And the Keeper has been in love with her in all of her incarnations. Because she's not just the moon, she's fate. Is she the moon? She's identified as fate, specifically. I know she's identified as fate, specifically. I think she's like the moon. I don't know that she is the moon. Fate fell in love with time. Which makes the Keeper time. Occasionally, fate can pull itself together again, and time is always waiting. He's ever patient. I love the interaction here with the Keeper and Zachary. The Keeper is, up to this point, been a very distant figure. You might almost say cold. But here we see the Keeper display warmth and a little bit of humor when he describes himself as the pirate. I thought that was really cute. So the pirate is a metaphor, but he is also the keeper. We get all of the revelations of who all of the stories have been about this whole time. Allegra the painter, the keeper and Mirabelle, time and fate. These sweet love stories have almost all been about them or Mirabelle's parents. It's at this point... Turns out Mirabelle managed to survive, accompanied by our friend the Persian cat. Because what kind of an evil person writes a story with a whole bunch of cats and then kills them? There are some lines you just don't cross. This is not John Wick. Harumph. No killing adorable animals. Because otherwise Keanu Reeves will come and kill you. And everybody you've ever met. Anyway. (laughs) So 
you can see that palpable relief on the keeper's face when Mirabelle walks in. <laughs> he is overcome with joy. We also see Mirabelle in her fate guise dropping some of the friendliness that she had exhibited before. That that friendly kind of older sister vibe that she'd been giving off was just as much a mask as her Where the Wild Things Get Up was. Our next chapter essentially mirrors Alice in Wonderland down to Dorian saying, must be getting somewhere near the center of the earth, he Alice thinks. <laughs> He's falling and falling and falling. And he falls into the starless sea, which is just honey. It's a lot of bees. That's a lot of bees. That's a lot of mess. That's a lot of sticky. That's a lot of ick. You also got to figure falling that far. Think about doing just a belly flop off of the diving board. I don't know that I picture this as a belly flop, mostly because I have the Alice imagery in my head and I have him kind of tucked and butt first. You still got to figure that's going to hurt. Yeah, but not as much as it just huge belly flop yeah, i'm just thinking of the surface tension of honey <laughs> that's gonna make that landing pretty uncomfortable it's a fairy tale i'm sure he doesn't shatter every bone in his body i'll accept it i'm sure it doesn't feel like concrete back to zachary and mirabelle so it's here that zachary gets his first real boon for his hero quest as Mirabelle gives him the sword that we heard of in the story about the sword maker who built a sword that would kill the king. In the previous chapter, we kind of missed that there was also a painting of Zachary shirtless with a scabbard and the sword. And a feather. So now, it seems, our painter is precognition. When Zachary gets the sword, you can definitely get a sense that now he's ready to go off and face his trials. And rescue his love. I love how Mirabelle's like, fine, we're going to go rescue his boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the humor. It's sweet and it's gentle, but it also has a little bit of a bite. So now we check back in with Dorian who is adrift on the starless sea. If by adrift you mean submerged under a fork ton of honey, then sure. And fortunately, a sailor has rescued him. A bunny pirate. That's right. It's Eleanor. Here we see he recognizes her based on the bunny ears that she's wearing and... The ship seems to match the bunny pirate painting that is hanging up in Zachary's room. It is here also that we discover Allegra has passed. Her body is up on the deck of this ship that might just be a boat, but might also be a proper ship. There is talk about names. Dorian realizing that he never really knew if Allegra was really Allegra's name. Eleanor saying, they called me Eleanor, but that's not my name. And then her asking him, what's your name? And he replies, Dorian. It feels truer than any other name he's used. He's starting to like it. I think we can make up personas to go along with new names. I think that we can become more like the person we want to be by changing what we are called and we can live up to the name that we choose. I also think that that name of Dorian really ties into his connection with Zachary, because that's the name that Zachary thinks of when he looks at him. Now, going back to our main read, the way that names are important in the name of the wind, the way that Denna may or may not be Denna, in real life. It may only be Denna with Kvoth. But I get the sense that with Denna, that's the version of herself that she likes best. 
And that may be the same here with Dorian. He likes the person that he is when he's with Zachary. At this point, Eleanor offers to take Dorian to the place that is tattooed on his back. The branches of a tree, the canopy of a forest of cherry blossoms. Star sparkling with lanterns and lights, though all of that is background for the centerpiece. A tree stump covered in books, dripping with honey under a beehive, with an owl sitting atop it, wearing a crown. And then, back to Zachary. So Zachary and Mirabelle take the elevator down to one of the deeper harbors. Because as the seas rise and fall, new harbors get set up at different levels. And this deeper one is that city of honey and bone that our traveler, who we now know to be Simon, visited earlier in the book. There is one point where Zachary is like, why are we here? And Mirabelle is just, I told you, we're rescuing your boyfriend again. And then we come to find out that, of course, Mirabelle has seen the painting of Zachary before meeting Zachary. And Allegra is the one that painted it. There's a little joke, comment, what have you, where Zachary mentions, it's not fate, it's art history. And Mirabelle just looks, who said anything about fate? Yeah, there's also a bit here where she essentially says, hey, knock it off with this whole fate stuff. You made choices. Those choices are what brought you here. You chose to take the book with you. You chose to go looking for where it came from. You chose to come with me on this adventure initially. You chose all of these things. At any given point, you could have chosen otherwise, but you didn't. And you have to stop thinking of this like being led along a series of breadcrumbs on a quest chain that you just have to do to get to the end of the game and you don't really have any agency. At any point, Zachary could have chosen to just punch out and not go on the adventure. He is here by his own choice. He is here based on his own agency. And frankly, she'd rather he just own up to that. I think that's something he needs to hear. It's part of growing up. You're not a fated hero or anything. You are where you are by choice. And then they are interrupted by a flock of owls. Owls are vicious. Owls seem kind of enchanting in some way, shape, or form, especially in story. These ones are forking terrifying. Yeah, one of my good friends had his cat attacked by an owl at night. Okay, Salem's fine. Now, this is part of why Leela and Zaka will never understand the joys of the great outdoors. We have heard owls. We have heard coyotes. We have heard other cats. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Yes, in short, Salem was fortunate that his littermate Jasmine happened to share his blood type and was able to do an emergency transfusion. He's fine. Salem's fine. Cats are fine. We would not tell you a horrible story about our friend's cat. I promise. But owls are vicious bastards. As are most birds, really. They all remember that they were dinosaurs once. <laughs> but this is where we leave them as they are separated. So let's start by talking about characters. Who did you pick this week? I picked Dorian. I picked Dorian because... So I chose Dorian because he's willing to learn and change and grow. But he's also willing to look past that this ought to be this way. He can see what is, even when what is is kind of that whimsical, childlike that shouldn't exist thing of Narnia was somewhat real in this place. A lot of people will put up a mental block of, well, 
that cannot possibly be real. So I'm not even going to try or I can't possibly do that thing. So I'm not even going to try artificial camps, thoughts that because it's not socially acceptable, it's not something one ought to do. Therefore, I can't do it. I like the, of course, I want to try to go through the back of this wardrobe. And he does it, proving that those ought tos and can'ts, whatever, turned it up on its head. So one of the things that I noticed about Dorian is he's basically someone who has grown up in a cult and has been told for a very long time exactly how the world is and ought to be. And then he had an experience that radically upended that. And in that intervening time since then has really taken to exploring all of those assumptions that he thought for so long held true and challenging those assumptions and being willing to open up to those possibilities that previously he didn't even think were real. I always bring it back to something personal to myself. My hair has not been its natural color all the way through, other than a very brief stint a few years ago when I hated it in so long that I don't think your parents know what my hair color is supposed to be, quote, supposed to be. Now, it's easy to say, yeah, I dye my hair all the time. And it started off with dyeing it like natural-ish colored red. But a number of years ago, one of my best friends started putting a teal streak through her hair or changing it to this beautiful cyan. Things that you don't see very often. And I have had so many people come up to me now that I consistently do something different with my hair than what would come out of my head naturally. Right now it's purple. At least the back half of it is purple. People come up and say, I wish I could do that. Well, you can. I can tell you what bleach to buy that won't destroy your hair. I can tell you what dyes to use that will last a pretty long time and will be bright and fun and beautiful. I can tell you what shampoo to use and how often to shampoo your hair to keep your hair color as long as you possibly could want it until your hair grows. You can do it. It is pretty easy. Even when I've had super long, thick, curly hair, bleach it one day, turn it purple or silver or blue or rainbow colored. I've done that anything the next day. And I've gotten so many people who compliment my courage. It's not courageous for me. It is what makes me feel human and good and right and me. And then they say, I wish I could do that. But they're choosing not to. Whether that's because they have a dress code wherever they work and they're afraid that they're going to be fired or they think that society is going to have a problem with them. And maybe some people have looked at that and gone, well, that person's clearly nearly 40. Why is their hair purple? To which I say, well, it could be boxed red and you wouldn't have a problem with it. What's the difference? And the best thing ever, we dyed your hair green over the summer, because why not? The thing is, like, you can tell yourself, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Or you could reach through the wardrobe and find out if you can go to Narnia. And I love that in the Starless Sea, Dorian just went for it. It's a good call. Now, how about you? Who did you pick? I picked Mirabelle. So... I really find her to be a fascinating character, in addition to sort of this otherworldly person who has perpetual reincarnations. There is also a core of wisdom to her. Real quick, I want to say that she could have turned into Manic Pixie Dream Girl, and she's not. Right. She has an element of whimsy to her, but she knows what she's doing. She is also ultimately at this point, working on her own goals. She has a score here with the Owl King. She has a score with the stars. She has her own quest 
and she's happy to accept Zachary's help on it, but she is far from this person who is just here to help Zachary do his thing and help him save his boyfriend. She's also very far from being a damsel in distress or needing a white knight. And the best thing about this story, neither she nor Zachary white knight for one another. They have a partnership. They recognize that their ends are beneficial to one another, and they recognize that they like one another as people. They consider one another friends, and that's enough. I think that's pretty awesome. I also love her relationship with the Keeper. It's very sweet and pure, and I like the Keeper, and so I like people who like the Keeper. So, <laughs> I like your reasoning. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. And so I really enjoyed getting to see these other facets of her personality in this story. Again, she's not always just completely friendly. She's got an edge to her because she has so much lived experience about how the world is, how people are, what the true stakes are. The time for thinking of everything as a cute little quest log is over for her. Now it's time to actually go out and do the adventure. I thought that was really powerful. So next, we're going to talk about game recommendations, although this time we're specifically looking at soundtracks. You first. My favorite game soundtrack is for Brutal Legend, which is basically Will the Game, <laughs> if you wanted to describe my aesthetic. I can see that. This is a Tim Schafer double fine game where you play Eddie Riggs, who is this grizzled roadie who gets thrown into a heavy metal fantasy land where he has to essentially resurrect the metal god Ormagodon and bring liberation to the people. So one of the things I love about this is in addition to having voice talent from Ozzy Osbourne and Lemmy Kilminster bunch of other metal luminaries including rob halford showing up here and there i believe vince neal shows up in addition to all of that you have in your car the ability to just play metal music there are few joys greater than hopping into your hot rod cruising around this fantasy land and then listening to metal from all over the world and from all different time periods so you have everything from like early 70s doom metal up through new wave of British heavy metal up through Bay Area thrash. You have blackened thrash. You have black metal. You have death metal. You have melodic death metal. You have symphonic metal, symphonic black metal. You have industrial metal. All of this stuff. It's just all over the place. And it is so cool. Like one of my favorite things to do is you get in there and then bread fan by budgie comes on and you cannot help but drive faster when that comes on <laughs> i recommend that if you have a chance look up bread fan by budgie and if you can't find it on your streaming service of choice you can probably find metallica's cover of it which is still okay but not as good as the original it is so cool yeah this is one of my favorite soundtracks and you can always find something for any mood on there it's really awesome I'm just sitting back letting you geek out over all of this and going, yeah, I can see how much this is making you happy just reminiscing about this game that probably the best thing about it was the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Easily. But you're so happy and it makes me smile ear to ear to see you so giddy about this. Mine is completely different. <laughs> As it should be. You'd be a little bit worried if it wasn't. For me, the best soundtracks are the ones that I can put on while I'm editing the podcast that are beautiful or that bring back a very visceral memory or just make me stop and appreciate the music. And almost to the point where either... Hearing it makes me want to go back and play it. Like Skyrim's music makes me want to go back and play it. What I'm going to say is that there are so, so many, so, so many soundtracks that I absolutely adore. 
I cannot put my finger on one. I tried. I was going to just choose Bastion from Supergiant Games because I adore that music. And then I thought about it for a second and I remembered how much I love the music from Mass Effect. And then I remembered the Barbershop Quartet remix of God Only Knows from Bioshock Infinite. And then I remembered that we had the music from Braid at our wedding. And I remember singing in DigiPen's choir, which is so completely flip-flopped because that school is 80% guys and like 19% women. So think about how the choir would be. There is a music program. That is why there is a choir. I absolutely adore the fact that there is a choir at a game school. I am not the best singer, but I had so much fun. And I even got to have a solo part. Unfortunately, didn't get to perform it because I got the worst cold of my life at the end of my (laughs) senior year there. But I got to officially be one of the singers that had a solo on Baba Yetu, which is from Civ 4. I met Shawnee, the person who made our intro and outro music, because she did the solos for songs like Build That Wall from Bastion. There are so many soundtracks and so many things that I love. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the people that I follow on YouTube that have done amazing covers of so many geeky songs and so many things from video games. Lindsey Sterling, Taylor Davis, their music is gorgeous. They're both violinists. Peter Hollins, who has covered everything from Dragon Age to Civ Four. He's done Game of Thrones and he's done things from The Hobbit and he's done all of this beautiful, beautiful music. It is impossible. It is absolutely impossible for me to pick a soundtrack. While I'm editing the podcast, I'll put on the soundtrack for Hades or I'll put on the soundtrack for Flower or Flow or Rhyme or any of these beautiful, beautiful soundscapes. And I didn't even mention things from Nintendo like The Legend of Zelda, I'll put on chill hop remixes of all of these. It's pretty much all I listen to anymore is video game music. And it's come so far from being just 8-bit noises or things that my Game Boy could create, which is high-pitched and squealy and annoying, to being these things where you can go to concerts that are just... Oh, we went to the one when in the before times it was possible to go to concerts. We went to a Zelda concert. I am in awe of everyone who can make and bring to life all of this auditory experience. I I can't pick just one. So can I put you down for everything? Yeah, actually, yeah. You can put me down for everything. (laughs) (laughs) okay cool everything the game (laughs) a phoenix mccullough soundtrack pretty much i have been known to just sit in a place and listen to the music where i'm not being beat up by enemies just enjoying myself headphones on (sighs) that brings us to our game experience what do you want to talk about this time The first time that I experienced mist was in high school because I'm that old. My best friend invited me over and her family had a computer that could play mist and it came on like six different CDs or something like that. I don't remember. It was either mist or Riven that did that, but it was massive for the time, which is laughable now. But the thing that I really remember is that She showed me the whole game, and then she showed me how it was completely possible to not play the whole game and win anyway. I'm betting there's a collision box somewhere because you do this beginning part of the game, and then you look in this compartment, and it's empty. And then you walk somewhere, and then you come back, and it's no longer empty, and it has the letter thingy for the last 
triggering event of this is the end of the game now. And so much like the way that my last story about how our friend mystically found the end of the game hidden thing that makes absolutely no sense if you don't play the rest of the game thing. She showed me how it was possible to do that in Mist. So did you do it? Of course. She just did it. It wasn't even like, do you have a choice in this matter? She just did it. So (laughs) that was also one of my first experiences of an exploit in a game or a cheat. Eh, maybe. I did have a Game Genie. Actually, I still have a Game Genie on my Game Boy. (laughs) And the thing that I am both proud of and absolutely not proud of is that the way that I played Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening on my original Game Boy, and mind you, this is not the color version, this is the black and white, or more accurately, black and green version of the game, (laughs) where you couldn't see it if it was dark out. I could walk through walls, I had infinite rupees, and I had infinite life. That is how I beat that game. And that is why when I went back to play on the Switch, I was like, wait, I forgot how to beat this particular boss and now I'm stuck. What? (laughs) Funny how you actually had to play the game. Funny. Yeah. About that. Anyway, your turn. Mine goes back to my freshman year of college. This would have been back in 2001-2002. And my roommate and I were usually the only ones in our building who stayed home over things like fall break or jan term break. So that meant that we had a lot of time and a lot of space to ourselves. There weren't any classes open. The cafeterias were generally closed. It'd be gross outside. There'd be no snow on the mountain, so we couldn't go skiing or snowboarding. So we would bring the Nintendo 64 down into the main lounge area where we had a big screen TV. And then we just had perfect dark marathons, just the two of us. Those would go all weekend. We'd then order a pizza or whatever when we got hungry and then just go to town on that. And it was just so much fun for the two of us to just sit there and lose ourselves in this game. I love that you chose Perfect Dark. Oh, why so? Because it's one of the few action games that isn't Tomb Raider, that has a female protagonist, especially from that era, and thus proving you don't need to be Nathan Drake to appeal to college dudes. I will also say that from a purely mechanical standpoint the optimal character to be was the gray alien because you had the smallest hitbox and you also had a better chance of getting the far shot which let you shoot through walls damn it yeah now that was an exploit right there okay (laughs) but yeah we'd have a lot of fun with that you know every now and then we'd have people who'd come in from other buildings to play with us and You know, it was a way to make those cold, lonely nights feel a little less lonely. They provided us with camaraderie and laughter and fun. You know, we'd also load up Mario Kart or Smash Brothers, things like that as well. It was just a really good time. So then what is your book recommendation this week? This is a weird one. First of all, It's not really a single book. It is a series of books. Second of all, this is a book that I am recommending not because I think other people will like it, but because I like it. This is Neil Stevenson's The Baroque Cycle. I gotcha. Okay. Neil Stevenson is one of my favorite authors, and the thing you have to understand about him is that he writes about obsessions, whatever his obsessions might be. And he will go on about them at length. And your choices are to either say, let's see where this goes and I'm here for it. Or you put the book down. The couple of books that I have attempted to read and or listen to by him get about halfway through the book. And then it quickly becomes apparent that he actually wanted to write another book halfway through that first book. Yeah, the obsession takes over. And like I say, you're either there for it or you're not. I mean, I read or listened to 
most of Reem D, and then I listened to about half of Seven Eves, and then gave up. I've tried, and they're interesting, but halfway through the book, it's a different book, and I just kind of lost. So the Baroque cycle consists of three books, Quicksilver, The Confusion, and The System of the World. These all take place in the early to mid-1600s during a period of upheaval in Europe. And they cover predominantly at their center the feud between Sir Isaac Newton and Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz over the invention of calculus, among other things. But that's one of the chief conflicts. And it's really kind of a one-sided feud, mostly because Leibniz is pretty cool and is mostly someone who reverse-engineered calculus thinking Newton would think it's pretty cool and wanted to show him how it worked and then had the gall to actually publish his notes on this. And then Newton got really pissy about it because that was Isaac Newton's character. As brilliant as he was, he was kind of a piss baby. (laughs) And it's also really about the continental versus analytical split within the modern philosophy era around the continental enlightenment and the British enlightenment, where the continental favored abstract reasoning, the British empirical school favored direct observation. So the theories that sprang out of that within the realms of natural philosophy differed. And throughout all of that, you know, you see the ties between the old occult alchemy and the new modern science of the Royal Society, and how as much as we like to think of these people as being these figures of enlightened reason, they were just as much mystics and wizards as anybody else, because Newton spent so much of his time obsessing over alchemy that it's a wonder that he produced as much useful scientific work as he did because so much of the rest of his life was garbage. Oh dear. It's all very fascinating. Uh, It also goes into things like why England has the obsession with tea as opposed to coffee and how that has less to do with specific flavors or anything like that and more to do with their imperialist leanings and which territories they controlled. And it also looks at the way the conceptions of rights were expanded over time in a period where initially it was revolutionary to suggest that white men who own property ought to have all equal rights. And that was considered a revolutionary perspective. And then Stevenson throws in the perspective of a woman who grew up as a slave. And then her works with emancipation and how in Britain slavery was ended. So it's very fascinating all throughout. There's all sorts of interesting characters, plus a bunch of Easter eggs for some of Stevenson's other works, like Cryptonomicon especially. Certain family names show up quite frequently, the Waterhouses, the Shaftos especially, as well as Enoch the Root or Enoch the Red, who is a mysterious figure, and I'm not going to go any further than that. There is humor, there's adventure, there's science, there's magic, there's just weird things happening. How much of this draws off of real-life actual history, and how much of this is Stevenson coming up with most of it off of the top of his head? I'd say 85% historical. All right. When he's actually writing history, he's pretty thorough. He's essentially got fairly historical characters like Leibniz and Newton who are pretty close to their real selves, as well as Bacon and the other members of the Royal Society. And then you also have invented characters like Halfcock Jack Shafto or Daniel Waterhouse or Eliza, who are the primary protagonists. I'm not saying that you will like this. I'm saying that I like this, and I hope at least someone in our listenership also likes it. And if you do, please, 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 please tweet at Will. At Tepish. T-E-P-P-E-S-H. Because 
he really would love to geek out about these books with you. Because I can't geek out about them with Phoenix. No, I haven't read them. I'm not sure I'm going to try. Sorry. That's fair. So, what do you have? My book recommendation this week is The Faceless Old Woman Who Secretly Lives in Your Home. And honestly, it's actually every single book by Joseph Fink and or Jeffrey Craner. They're the creators behind Welcome to Night Vale. And The Faceless Old Woman is a Welcome to Night Vale book. I'm going to say that their first Welcome to Night Vale book was one that I found a little lacking in terms of I didn't get through it. I didn't love it. But I did absolutely love It Devours, which is the second one. And I loved this book, which is a deep dive into one of the characters and has almost nothing to do with the podcast series other than an origin story for the faceless old woman, which is beautiful and fascinating and love. I just, oh, man, I did not know what to expect. And the best part about it is that Mara Wilson is the person who voices the faceless old woman in the podcast and she reads the book on the audiobook. Same thing with Cecil Baldwin being the reader for It Devours. I have listened to it and I own a physical copy of it because it has purple spray pages. No one does that. <laughs> and I love that book. I also adore Alice Isn't Dead. So there is a podcast of Alice Isn't Dead. And then there is the book Alice Isn't Dead, who are both performed by Jessica Nicole who incidentally is also Astrid from Fringe, if you're our age and a geek and you remember that show. And I love the performances of the books and I love the contents of the books. I think that both Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink are very good writers, very good comedic writers. And I still love Welcome to Night Vale. I haven't listened as much as I would like to since we started our podcast because there's just this plethora of things to pay attention to at this point. But The Faceless Old Woman is the one that I chose. It's the newest one. They took this character who is so central and centralized to Night Vale and Night Vale itself feels like such an insulated place that there is no outside of. And her story is all over the globe, a lot in Europe. But it's also historical, at least in terms of the time period. It's not remotely accurate in terms of like historical events. It's kind of the outlander version of history rather than necessarily being like the Baroque cycle version of history. But it's absurd and funny and light and also that dark sense of humor that I absolutely love. And I think that you need to read it and or listen to it because I think that you would adore it, especially if you liked It Devours. And I think I remember you enjoying that one. Yeah, I enjoyed It Devours. As for Alice Isn't Dead, part of why I love it so much is that it's so, so creepy it's got kind of a similar vibe to The Faceless Old Woman. It's also a bit of a love story. It just suits everything about what I like in stories. And next, quotes from The Starless Sea. All right, so I'll let you kick this one off. Okie dokie, artichokey. As is always the theme here, I can't choose one. I did say one of them. And then I added another one, which I also read. <laughs> so those ones are, it feels truer than any other name he's used. He's starting to like it. I also have, and so the moon found a way to keep her love. But the two that I'm now kind of tied between, because I was able to say those other ones throughout the podcast, are, he doesn't even need words to tell a story. And the other one is kind of a split between a sentence that is at the top of a page and one that is at the middle of a page, but I still like the way that it's come together. Dorian sinks into a sea of honey, a slow-moving current pulling him downward. What a stupid, poetic way to die, he thinks. And that is all you need to know about my sense of humor because I find that hilarious. 
I do like that one. And I think that that's going to be my quote that gets all prettified. All right, so here's what I've got. This is from The Keeper. Symbols are for interpretation, not definition. What I love about this is in fiction, it's oftentimes really easy for characters to let omens define them. That would be things like tarot or horoscopes or prophecies or special marks or what have you. This is a way to reframe that. And this is a way to reclaim agency for the character. And this, I think, also ties in with Mirabelle's lecture to Zachary about choice. He gets to see these prophecies and portents and signs, but it's his job to interpret them for himself and determine what their meaning is. He gets to choose how that affects his life. How he sees himself affects who he is, and that affects the choices that he can make. And it's his ability to interpret those that lets him have agency. Tying back to that nightmare number 113, where you have people telling you who you are without asking you yourself. This is a reclamation project. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember. As we look at our world around us, as we look at the fiction we consume, as we look at the media that we participate in, it's natural to find characters that we gravitate towards. And the thing to remember is that we interpret those characters, those figures. They do not get to define us. I think that's a very powerful reminder, and it's a way to sort of take back our relationship with these fictional worlds. And again, those stories, like symbols, are there for us to interpret. They're not there to define us. We get to define them. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude, where we will be covering pages 406 through 488 of the U.S. paperback edition of The Starless Sea. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And we'd also like to thank Aaron Morgenstern for creating this universe that we've enjoyed exploring. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. And audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. If you'd like to help support our endeavors, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, where you can find early access to our podcasts, as well as exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, as well as fun little goodies like art and what have you. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Recording, 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 because seriously, if it wasn't recording and we did this on a Monday, I would be very, very mad. Very grumpy. Very grumpy. Very grumpy. Grumpy. So did you press record? I did press record. Okay. I'd be really sad after all of that if you didn't. Uh, Yeah. See, 23, 24, 25. We're good.